Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features the full Richard S. Salant Lecture on Freedom of the Press, delivered by Nadine Strossen, Professor at New York Law School and former President of the ACLU. The lecture covered the topic of free expression on college campuses. We begin with Tom Patterson, Acting Director of the Shorenstein Centre, explaining the history of the Salant Lecture. This is the eighth annual Richard Salant Lecture on Freedom of the Press. In his era, Dick Salant was known as the best of the news division presidents. When he took over the helm at CBS News, there was no 60 Minutes, there was no full-time election unit, there was no CBS Morning News. He introduced all of them. He also expanded the CBS nightly newscast to 30 minutes, making CBS the first network to do so. I'm old enough to remember when TV news was a radio-like headline service, Dick Salant pioneered the video-based narrative newscast that we know today. Among the bevy of correspondents that Dick Salant mentored was Marvin Kelly, the first director of the Schwarzstein Center. Now in his efforts, Dick had the full backing of CBS's overall president, Dr. Frank Stanton. Frank was a staunch supporter of the Shorenstein Center and the Kennedy School, retiring here in Boston uh, after he left New York. In his will, Frank left a bequest that through the Stanton Foundation, which I mentioned earlier, allowed us to establish the Salant Lecture. Frank Stanton insisted that this lecture be named not for himself, but for his friend and protege, Richard Salant. Now, Frank Stanton was not a newsman. He never covered a story, but he gradually came to think like a journalist. In his early years as head of CBS, he required journalists to sign a loyalty oath as a means of keeping Senator McCarthy at bay. Stanton stood by Edward R. Murrow when he attacked McCarthy two years later on his program See It Now, but the two men were not buddies. Stanton saw Murrow as an attention seeker. Murrow saw Stanton as an overly interested person in the commercial entertainment side of CBS. But whatever doubt there might have been about Stanton's commitment to the news division, it was dispelled in his closing years as CBS president. A final act was to refuse a congressional subpoena that directed him to turn over the outtakes of CBS's controversial documentary the selling of the Pentagon, which told of how the Pentagon was using public money to promote its brand of militarism. Risking the threat of jail, Stanton said that honoring the subpoena would have a chilling effect on journalism. Congress was infuriated, but eventually backed down. Frank received the Peabody Award for his steadfast defense of the First Amendment. And now on to this year's Salant lecturer, Nadine Strassen. Her New Jersey family, I'm sure, is a reason she spent her career defending people's rights. Her father was a Holocaust survivor. In 1988, after nine years of practicing law, Nadine was appointed a professor of law at New York Law School. Three years later, she was chosen as president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the first woman to hold the post. She was at the helm for nearly 18 years, a period when the ACLU 
press forward on a broad range of civil liberties issues, including fighting the government over its effort to suppress expression on the internet. In 1997, the Supreme Court came down nine to zero on the side of the ACLU. Under her leadership, the ACLU also led the fight after 9-11 to put limits on the government's surveillance and detention policies. Nadine is fearless. It takes a bit of courage to risk attack from adversaries. It takes a whole lot of courage to take on issues that might anger those who would otherwise be on your side. You have to be daring to write a book titled Defending Pornography <laughs> and to argue for the decriminalization of all drugs, not just marijuana. Nadine is on familiar turf this evening. She was a Harvard undergrad. After graduating Phi Beta Kappa, she stayed on to attend Harvard Law, where she was an editor of the Law Review. Nadine Strassen, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction, Tom, and thanks to the rest of you for that warm welcome. I'm really delighted to address this important forum named for and endowed by two free speech champions, Richard Salant and Frank Stanton. In their honor, I feel impelled to briefly note the ongoing repression of free speech on their medium, broadcast TV thanks to some very old, very flawed Supreme Court decisions, which the court has repeatedly refused to reconsider. Most recently, it refused to do so in a 2012 decision arising from the notorious wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl, uh, which one commentator called a tempest in a B-cup. Although that whole incident uh, lasted a mere one half of one second, its impact is still enduring every second of every day, even now, more than a decade later. It triggered a harsh new federal statute and FCC actions that severely punish so-called indecent expression, which is constitutionally protected in all other media. But on broadcast TV, it is subject to huge fines, thus prompting self-censorship, even of news with serious value, even beyond direct FCC censorship, which is still also ongoing. So in, honors, uh, in honor of Messrs. Salant and Stanton, I'd like to cite just one example involving their own CBS. Uh, in 2006, reasonably fearing an FCC enforcement action, many CBS affiliates refused to air an award-winning documentary film about the 9-11 attacks. Why? Because it featured audio recordings of emergency responders, firefighters, and police officers whose spontaneous exclamations included some profane words, hardly shocking under the circumstances, and yet censored. The Shorenstein Center webpage about this lecture says, quote, Frank Stanton worked to ensure that broadcast journalism received First Amendment protection equal to that received by the print press. So he would be sorry to learn that this goal still hasn't been achieved, but I'm sure he would be glad that the ACLU and others are working toward it. 
So with that nod to uh, the namesake and the endower of the lecture, for the remainder of my talk, I've chosen to focus on another ongoing free speech challenge, which is even closer to home <laughs> for all of us here. Uh, namely, I'm going to discuss one of the many rampant free speech problems we've been facing on campuses all over the US, including right here at Harvard. Uh, I'm grateful to many members of the Harvard community who have stood up for free speech here and beyond. Uh, now I'd like to salute just one such free speech champion who is with us tonight, uh, one of my guests, Harvey Silverglate, who is a Harvard Law School alum who co-founded a very important organization, FIRED, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and is also a longtime ACLU leader. Earlier this year, the University of Chicago adopted a powerful recommitment to campus free speech, precisely to push back against the prevailing suppression. The statement was drafted by UC's acting law school dean, Jeff Stone, who has been a free speech scholar and advocate for almost half a century. Yet, Jeff recently said, quote, the level of intolerance for controversial views on college campuses today is much greater than at any time in my memory. Of the, and I concur with that. Um, of the many current free speech problems, the one I've chosen to address in my brief time is one that Harvey Silverglate complained about specifically at Harvard Law School way back in 1996 in a Wall Street Journal. Uh, op-ed, and it's a general problem that I wrote about even earlier uh, in my 1995 book, Defending Pornography. Sadly, though, this problem has become even worse since then. Specifically, I'm referring to the overbroad, unjustified concept of illegal sexual harassment as extending to speech with any sexual content that anyone finds offensive. This distorted concept has recently become entrenched on campus due to pressure from the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, the OCR. By threatening to pull federal funds, the OCR has forced schools, even well-endowed schools such as Harvard, to adopt sexual misconduct policies that violate many civil liberties as denounced by an admirable, remarkable open letter that 28 members of the Harvard Law School faculty published last fall, uh, with the signers including distinguished female professors who are lifelong feminist scholars and women's rights advocates. Tonight, I'm gonna to be zoning in, zeroing in <laughs> on just one of these problematic sexual misconduct policies, namely, as I said, the wrong-headed sexual harassment concept because its subversion of free speech is germane to the theme of this lecture series. Of course, combating gender discrimination, violence, and um, sexual assault is of the utmost urgency. I hope that goes without saying, but I will underscore it, of the utmost urgency. But OCR's distorted concept of sexual harassment actually does more harm than good to gender justice, not to mention to free speech. Now, more than 20 years ago, my book, Defending Pornography, made this point 
in the context of opposing laws that some feminists were then advocating, uh, laws that would ban sexual expression that they viewed as demeaning to women. In fact, there was a vigorous campaign for one such law right here in Cambridge, which was defeated thanks in large part to other anti-censorship feminists, including the Boston Women's Health Collective, the publishers of the classic Our Bodies, Ourselves. Well, alas, all these years later, decades later, my book's message is still relevant in response to the still ongoing efforts to suppress sexual expression for the purported sake of women's equality and safety, now through the vehicle of campus sexual harassment policies. Uh, by the way, this book was my first non-academic publication, and I hadn't realized how few free speech rights uh, first-time authors have in their contracts with major publishers. So <laughs> I didn't have much to say over the book's title or cover, uh, which the publisher clearly designed to be in your face, uh, provocative. You see that subtitle, Free Speech Sex and the Fight for Women's Rights, and that neon flaming big word pornography uh, right in the middle. Uh, well, that prompted this comment from uh, one of my academic friends who had written scholarly works on the general subject with the typical long, dull academic titles, you know, with a semicolon in the middle and dripping with sarcasm and, and maybe a little envy. She said, Gina Dean, couldn't they work in the word orgasm too? <laughs> OCR's uh, flawed sexual harassment concept reflects sexist stereotypes that are equally insulting to women and men. For women, it embodies the archaic, infantilizing notion that we're inherently demeaned by any expression with sexual content. And that same problem plagued the anti-pornography laws that I mentioned. In fact, the ACLU's lawsuits against those anti-pornography laws argued that they violated both free speech and gender equality. I'd like to quote a brief that the ACLU Women's Rights Project filed more than 30 years ago, which sadly is fully apt today. Quote, a law that equates women with children and men with satyrs is hardly a step toward gender equality. Shortly after Ruth Bader Ginsburg became the founding director of the ACLU Women's Rights Project in 1972, a reporter who was interviewing her used a somewhat belittling term from that era, describing her work as women's lib, to which Ginsburg sternly retorted, no, we're working to liberate men and women. And here I want to draw another important lesson from uh, that classic liberal concept, the classic <coughs> liberal concept of, of gender justice. As even the detractors recognized through that flip term lib, the key goal was liberation, liberty. In contrast, when I read what is self-proclaimed as feminism on campus today, too often the new watchword has become something diametrically different namely safety. Let me quote my favorite rebuttal to this fearful approach. It comes from one of the greatest Supreme Court opinions ever, <laughs> happens to be a First Amendment opinion, very fitting for this occasion. And I'm referring to Justice Brandeis's 1927 opinion in Whitney versus Ohio. He wrote, those who won our independence 
believed that the final end of the state was to make us free. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. There's yet a further problem with the current campus exaltation of safety, namely it's very different from the dictionary definition. Rather, the current clamor for campus safety seeks protection from exposure to ideas that make one uncomfortable. For instance, last fall, Brown University set up a safe space for students who felt endangered by the mere fact that a debate was taking place on campus on the topic of how should colleges handle sexual assault. Let me quote the New York Times article on point. The room was equipped with cookies, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, pillows, blankets, and a video of frolicking puppies, as well as students and staff members trained to deal with trauma. Emma Hall, a junior, went to the debate, but she said that after a while she had to go to the safe space because I was feeling bombarded by a lot of viewpoints that really go against my dearly and closely held beliefs. This focus on safety from disturbing ideas is especially misplaced given the ongoing serious threats to students' physical safety on campus, including rape and sexual assault, which continue to be alarmingly prevalent, as indicated by a survey that the Association of American Universities released just a couple weeks ago. And I saw President Faust's follow-on letter to the Harvard community about that. In, and also, in, in the wake of the latest mass gun murders on a campus just last Thursday, less than a week ago, we have to contrast government's pressure to shield students from ideas with its failure to shield them from guns. To the contrary, some laws are even moving in the opposite direction. For example, Texas has enacted a so-called campus concealed carry law which actually allows gun owners to bring their hidden weapons into the classroom. Think of what that, that's going to do for open debate in a classroom. Um, in short, when it comes to safety, our students are being doubly disturbed. Too often denied safety from physical violence, which is critical for their education, but too often granted safety from ideas, which is antithetical to their education. To say that we should be protected from any idea is the exact opposite of what the Supreme Court has hailed as the bedrock of our free speech system, namely that speech may never be suppressed because anyone has any negative reaction to its ideas, even the most vehemently negative reaction by even the vast majority of our fellow citizens. To be sure, speech may be suppressed if, but only if, it poses an imminent danger of concrete injury, for example, an intentional incitement of imminent violence. However, short of such an extraordinary situation, Justice Brandeis eloquently explains why we must brave the discomforts and other potential downsides that are posed by speech whose ideas we consider evil and even incendiary. As he said, Fear of serious injury cannot alone justify suppression of free speech. Men feared witches and burned women. The fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones.
This speech protective philosophy was memorably summed up specifically in the campus context by a revered past university president, Clark Kerr of the University of California. As he said, the university is not engaged in making ideas safe for students. It is engaged in making students safe for ideas. Now, when Kerr uttered these bracing words in 1961, it was the students who were fighting for freedom and government officials who sought to stifle freedom in the name of safety. Alas, this situation has been inverted on too many campuses today with students themselves asking the university, demanding the university to keep them safe from disturbing ideas. Uh, in response, university officials could well quote a point Dick Salant used to make about the broadcast media. As he said, our job is to give people not what they want, but what we decide they ought to have. Notably, in 1984, Harvard President Derek Bach quoted Clark Kerr's great line in an eloquent open letter Bach wrote to the Harvard community about various free speech controversies that had recently roiled this campus. Uh, this letter remains fully apt today, and I was happy to see it's actually posted on the Harvard website, along with some other policies that are less speech friendly. Uh, oh, let diversity bloom, I guess. Um, one of the incidents that Bach described was a Harvard uh, flyer that a Harvard fraternity had circulated, which, to quote him, referred to women in terms that were lewd, insulting, and grossly demeaning. While he stressed that this speech should not be penalized in any iota at all, he also explained that it should be publicly condemned. And I like to summarize this key distinction by saying that we should not censor offensive speech, but we surely have a responsibility to censure it. Uh, and I think Bach sets a marvelous example. Now, I'll explain in a bit more detail the free speech and feminist flaws with OCR's sexual harassment concept, which Harvard and too many other schools have adopted. Again, the OCR has forced campuses to punish as sexual harassment, quote, any unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. There is no exception for speech. To the contrary, the OCR definition expressly extends to, quote, verbal conduct, uh, which is a good example of Orwellian newspeak. Uh, or I should say, it's a good example of Orwellian new verbal conduct. In short, campuses are pressured to punish as harassment any expression with any sexual content that anyone subjectively finds offensive, no matter how unreasonably or irrationally. And the OCR explicitly rejected an objective reasonable person standard, stating that expression will be harassing even if it is not offensive to an objectively reasonable person of the same gender in the same situation, quote unquote. Um, as a nice coincidence, one of the first critiques of this sensorial concept was written by none other than journalist Michael Barone, uh, the widower of Joan Shorenstein, the remarkable namesake of the Shorenstein Center. Michael Barone denounced the OCR rules shortly after it had been announced in 2011 in a column he wrote, which was referring to a then current political scandal that some of you might remember. 
As he wrote, this sexual harassment concept could get campus speakers into big trouble for saying something considerably milder than the double entendres we were hearing in cable news coverage of the Anthony Weiner scandal. Universities have, in fact, been punishing students and faculty members for all manner of sexually themed expression, even when it has an important academic purpose. The most egregious, most recent example is the prolonged sexual harassment investigation that Northwestern University conducted against film professor Laura Kipnis earlier this year because of an article she published in the Chronicle of Higher Education in which, ironically, she criticized the exaggerated, distorted concept of sexual harassment that is prevalent on campus. For months, the university subjected her to a star chamber type uh, interrogations, pursuing the charge that her essay somehow constituted unlawful harassment. I'd like to cite just a few other examples of campus censorship in the guise of punishing sexual harassment. The Naval War College placed a professor on administrative leave and demanded he apologize because during a lecture that critically described Machiavelli's views about leadership, he paraphrased Machiavelli's comments about raping the goddess Fortuna. Another example, the University of Denver suspended a tenured professor and found him guilty of sexual harassment for teaching about sexual topics in a graduate level course, in a course unit entitled Drugs and Sin in American Life from Masturbation and Prostitution to Alcohol and Drugs. Next example, a sociology professor at Appalachian State University was suspended because she showed a documentary film that critically examined the adult film industry. A sociology professor at the University of Colorado was forced to retire early because of a class in her course on deviance in which volunteer student assistants played roles in a scripted skit about prostitution. A professor of English and film studies at San Bernardino, San Bernardino Valley College was punished for requiring his class to write essays defining pornography. Yes, that was just defining it, not even defending it. Uh, and, and just this summer, Louisiana State University fired a tenured professor of early childhood education who has received multiple teaching awards because she occasionally used vulgar language and humor about sex when she was teaching about sexuality and also to capture her students' attention. Now, and I could go on, you get the idea. Uh, now I'd like to underscore why we should not punish any unwelcome sexual speech as the OCR dictates. In our wonderfully diverse society, we all have widely divergent views about what sexual expression we find positive or negative. I'd like to describe a cartoon on point. It shows three people in an art museum looking at a classic nude female torso, a fragment of an ancient sculpture minus the head and minus the limbs, and each viewer's reaction is shown in an air bubble. And the first one thinks, art, and the second one thinks, smut, and the third one thinks, an insult to amputees. <laughs> We individuals even have different perspectives about whether any given expression has any sexual content at all. That's captured by the old joke about the man who sees every ink blot his psychiatrist shows him as wildly erotic. And when the psychiatrist says to him, 
you're obsessed with sex. The man answers, what do you mean I'm obsessed? You're the one who keeps showing me all these dirty pictures. <laughs> In short, we individuals cannot delegate these inherently subjective determinations to any officials. As with all discretionary decisions, uh, they will be arbitrary at best, discriminatory at worst. An appropriately limited concept of illegal sexual harassment in the educational context was issued by the Supreme Court in 1999. And by the way, one of the points that was made in this remarkable open letter by the 28 Harvard Law School faculty members was that uh, the definition of sexual harassment that this school, among many others, has adopted under pressure of the OCR uh, departs from and is inconsistent with the Supreme Court's definition. Uh, and here is how the Supreme Court defines it. Not just anything that anyone considers unwelcome subjectively as the OCR would have it, but rather only unwelcome conduct that is targeted, discriminatory, and I'm gonna quote, so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, and that so undermines and detracts from the victim's educational experience that the victims are effectively denied equal access to an institution's resources and opportunities. Now that concept respects both free speech and gender equality, and therefore it's been endorsed by advocates of both, including the ACLU Women's Rights Project and the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors uh, Committee on Women in the Academic Profession. Indeed, in the teaching context, the AAUP uh, advocates an added prerequisite before any expression uh, may be deemed to be sexual harassment, namely that it is not germane to the subject matter, an additional requirement. And here's the AAUP's explanation for that, uh, and it's specifically their Committee on Women in the Academic Profession. Quote, the academic setting is distinct from the workplace in that wide latitude is required for professional judgment in determining the appropriate content and presentation of academic material. Unfortunately, Harvard is just one of the uh, growing number of campuses that has been pressured to adopt its, its, the OCR's uh, dangerously distorted concept of sexual harassment. And this has had a chilling effect here, according to one of your leading in-house critics, somebody I greatly admire, but I'm in broad company because she's an internationally renowned feminist scholar and activist, namely Harvard Law School professor Janet Haley. Let me quote from a trenchant critique that she published in The Crimson last year. Quote, to the OCR, academic freedom, the very lifeblood of education and research, appears not to register as important at all. Classroom instruction and academic debate can and will become the basis of complaints and sanctions. Chill is already happening. Teachers at Harvard, alarmed by the policy's expansive scope, are jettisoning teaching tools that make any reference to human sexuality, close quote. <coughs> well, I'm running out of time. I would like to close on a positive note, so uh, let me quote on that point one of my favorite philosophers, Woody Allen. 
He was once coming to the end of a speech and he told the audience, I want to end with something positive, but I can't think of anything positive to say. Uh, would you settle for two negatives? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can cite many positives and first and foremost, the many individuals at Harvard and elsewhere who are courageously standing up for free speech, including by resisting OCR overreaching. Uh, you are acting in the finest traditions that were set by Dick Salant and Frank Stanton. Thank you very much. So we do have time for some questions. Um, and maybe I'll ask the first. Sure. Um, sort of picking up on where you went toward the end of the uh, of your talk, um, and um, about how one might think about differences in terms of, of free expression in institutions of higher education versus the workplace, versus the media, versus the the soapbox industry. Uh, kind of, how do you make distinctions across these different, and how important are those different kind of situations or settings as you think about this issue? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a free speech absolutist, but uh, that doesn't mean that speech is always protected along with every other fundamental right. It may be restricted, and I'm going to use a lawyer's term here, uh, if but only if you can show that the restriction promotes a goal of countervailing goal of compelling importance that can't be promoted in any other way. And that's a very inappropriately hard burden of proof, but it might well be easier to satisfy that burden of proof in one factual setting than another factual setting. So for example, I think in a workplace where um, we've actually had some cases where uh, women were newly desegregating, gender desegregating, uh, traditional bastions of male work, uh, namely fire houses. I'm looking at a friend who's a devotee of these. And uh, one of the um, attempts to uh, intimidate and make women's, the newly anointed women firefighters' lives unpleasant was to take um, pinups, uh, por you know, pornographic pictures of women, and tape them to the lockers of individual women. I think in that context, that clearly would constitute sufficiently targeted harassment that sufficiently undermines their equal access so, to ideas. So I guess I'm answering your question even more broadly, Tom, which is that every analysis has to be fact-specific. And if examples of what I think does not in any way, shape, or form even begin to satisfy that concept are the examples that I've recited from campuses around the country. Uh, I'm not a ringer, but um, Nadine and I have been friends for over 35 years, uh, along with her husband. But Nadine, you started off with a critique of uh, broadcast regulation. And, yeah, and I would like to point out that um, uh, scarcity is the uh, false uh, justification for broadcast regulation differently than from uh, other media. Uh, yet, it's uh, non-existence. We now, if there ever was scarcity, uh, we now live in an era of superabundance channel and portal capacity, so there's no scarcity. Um, moreover, in a case of uh, FCC versus Fox, 
um, in a concurrent opinion, uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas uh, basically spelled out uh, the terms uh, that uh, broadcast regulation was uh, unconstitutional and invited members of the public to come in and sue the FCC. Um, in addition to that, uh, broadcast licenses now are run for eight-year terms, and at the end of that eight-year terms, a broadcast licensee only has to submit a postcard size renewal application. Um, yet the uh, law requires the FCC to first find that renewal would be uh, in the public interest, and there's no evidentiary basis for coming to such a conclusion. So it's arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, my question is, is the, FCC, is the uh, ACLU or any other organization of per persons willing to come forward or, or currently engaged in a suit against the FCC regarding broadcast regulation so that under, say, Section 303G of the Communications Act, they can make the best use of radio, which is spectrum, for, say, high-speed unlicensed broadband. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Bowie. He's an expert in this area, as you can tell. It's fabulous to see you again. Uh, it's very frustrating because the Fox case was the one that I was referring to in which the Supreme Court, for the umpteenth time, the second time in that same litigation, declined the opportunity to squarely knock down uh, old precedents that are completely inconsistent with all the intervening precedents that have come along, right? So in the meantime, they have uh, protected, quote, indecent speech in the internet, in satellite, in cable, as well as the traditional print media. Uh, and it's not that they're substantively defending it. In fact, not only has Clarence Thomas, but other individual justices across the ideological spectrum have indicated that there is a First Amendment problem here, uh, but they're refusing to do anything about it. And uh, they did seek comments on new rules, which the ACLU and other free speech organizations submitted, but the FCC has just been sitting on them. And in terms of getting a lawsuit, bringing a lawsuit, you know, the issues of standing ripeness and all of those justiciability. And we have the same thing in the campus context, and Harvey and I have talked about that. You know, how, many people who are not litigators will be shocked. How can this unconstitutional rule be exist in both of these contexts? I think there's no doubt in my mind that if the Supreme Court heard any of these cases on the merits, we would win substantively as a First Amendment matter. But the Supreme Court has control over its docket, and it's, for some reason, not being activistic on this issue. If you have any ideas, we're all ears. Nadine, um, I've been an observer of the uh, college and university scene for nearly half a century, and so have you, and you have a little advantage. You are, in, you are a faculty member. My question is, I have sensed, especially since the mid-1980s, a gradual decrease in the power and influence of faculties and a consequent increase in the power and numbers, I should add, of administrators. In administrators, I include, by the way, officers of general counsel and who operate on the theory of no liability. That's what they're mainly interested in. Administrators don't like bad publicity. Lawyers don't like liability. Um, and my question to you is whether you agree with this observation, and if you do, 
how can this trend be reversed? How can faculties recapture the, uh, the moral and actual authority that they once had over the operation of institutions of higher education? Wow, that's such a great observation, and uh, I agree with it a anecdotally. I'm sure others have studied it and could document it, but you're reminding me, Harvey, that I saw a letter or an op-ed that was co-authored by two Harvard Law School professors on this topic. Um, one was um, Charles Fried, and I'm blanking out on who the other one was. And forgive me if my numbers are not quite accurate, some people here may know, but they gave this astonishing statistic that not too long ago there was one provost at Harvard and now there are like, you know, dozens or I mean hundreds. I, I mean, it was just exponentially different. And I personally remember when both Harvard, you mentioned the general counsel office, when Harvard and Columbia and Cornell and other Ivy League colleges. I happened to be a lawyer in private practice, so it was in the early 80s, and I was representing, uh, my law firm was representing Cornell. My good friend Floyd Abrams, another First Amendment advocate, was representing Columbia, and somebody else was representing Harvard. But it was only out, I think, at most, each of those campuses had one in-house lawyer, at most. And it was somebody fairly junior who was just kind of like the guardian or the watchdog, the pers the people that we, the, the outside lawyers reported to. And now I see, you know, Columbia has dozens of, of lawyers. I'm sure Harvard is the same. Um, good job opportunities. But um, in all seriousness, you know, coming back to why, and, and faculty members are being disempowered in other ways as well. Uh, tenure, I think, is going, I, I, I'm sure Harvard is different in this respect, but uh, when I speak in the hinterlands and land-grant universities that are subject to uh, political pressure of the most immediate concrete kind, right, it's the state legislature that funds them or as has gotten a lot of publicity lately, to cite one example, Wisconsin defunds them. That kind of pressure go is, is absolutely palpable and has been through the decades that I have been in the campus trenches. Uh, moving toward a system of more and more adjunct faculty members who can barely keep up with their teaching requirements, don't even have time to think about scholarship, let alone have a role in governance, which uh, who's going to stick his or her neck out if he or she doesn't have tenure or even a prospect of tenure? Uh, and there are all kinds of economic factors that are at play here, but I think there is a uh, existential threat to the university across a whole lot of issues because of that 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 very important factor you put your finger on Harvey uh, Nadine I um, wanted to ask about by the way there was zero provost at Harvard from under under Nathan Pusey and Derek Bach and now there's an office of the provost um, but I wanted to ask about the, the, the phenomenon of, of undergraduates particularly seem to want to be comfortable at all times to the extent that it's almost starting to seem like assigning Shakespeare professors are harassing their students, all that sex and violence in there, you know. And I'm thinking about these terms that I've been reading in the Times particularly of trigger warnings and uh, microaggressions, and you know, it seems when you can establish 
a, a, a hunk of vocabulary uh, and make a beachhead. There's a term for these things that it would it implies that there's a reality underneath that term, and, and you do have a beachhead then. And uh, I just wanted to ask if you have uh, a comment about these, 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 these this, this sort of new phenomenon of, of trigger warnings and, and microaggression. Well, you can guess what my position would be, but before I, I mean, clearly inconsistent with the First Amendment and academic freedom, but before I address that point, which I hope is fairly obvious, um, I want to uh, call your attention to those of you who haven't yet seen it, uh, to me an even more interesting critique, which was in a cover story in the September Atlantic magazine, co-authored by Greg Lukianoff, uh, who is the uh, president and CEO of FIRE, uh, co-authored with Jonathan Haidt, a uh, sociologist, social psychologist at NYU. And they said, look, each of us could write this whole story about why uh, examples that Craig is talking about and that I've talked about would violate academic freedom in the First Amendment. But we also want to point out how they are actually adverse to the mental and emotional and psychological well-being of students. So the very countervailing value that is being, you know, going back to that analysis I said, so is it necessary to promote a countervailing value? Uh, and their answer is no, it's actually doing more harm than good to students' well-being. And it's so interesting because they take a specific type of psychology and, and example after example of the policies, including the trigger warnings and microaggression, they show how it violates some major tenet of behavioral cognitive ther therapy. Uh, so on the free speech point, uh, to give a trigger warning, uh, even assuming it is only a warning, uh, and does not mean, therefore, you may not teach anything that somebody thinks is going to trigger some negative reaction. Um, it's like putting a scarlet letter on something, so even the label is somehow uh, negative, conveying a negative judgment about whatever it is that's being taught. <coughs> Beyond that, uh, many students are saying you should not teach anything that is triggering with or without a label. And uh, I, my sense is that this movement, this demand has been so heavily critiqued that I think it is on the wane. I'm a little bit superstitious. Um, uh, it's been critiqued, actually, you know, interestingly enough, it originated, you say it's been around for relatively recently, it originated maybe 20 or so years ago, I believe, uh, in the feminist blogosphere, specifically for sexual assault survivors uh, who it was thought would um, feel comfortable talking and communicating in, uh, in, those, in those confines. So ironically, it was used to encourage people who, to open up who might not otherwise have done so. So now it's been not only inverted to chill speech, but it's also spread, and apparently very unscientifically, because from what I can gather from the expert literature, you can't predict at all what is going to trigger a post-traumatic post stress disorder was the, was the origin of this. So it's a lot of inaccurate, bad science, junk science 
as well as antithetical to free speech. Now, you know, sort of going back to your first question, Tom, I think, you know, what I think is, is certainly really important for those of us in academia, and I know in the media as well, is just because we have a free speech right to say something, does not at all mean we say it. We have responsibility, right? And not all self-censorship is a bad thing. So, I mean, there are many, we think, what is a responsible way to, a professional way, to communicate with our audience, to communicate with our students. So we have maybe special freedom, but I think we also have special responsibilities. <laughs> I would like to ask you your feeling or the ACLUL feeling about the policing of campus speech in another area, not, not the sexual area. And I have in mind specifically the so-called water buffalo mm -hmm. event where a, an undergraduate at midnight studying for a final yelled out of his dorm window to a bunch of rowdy students below, go, go back to your homes, you water buffaloes. Uh, the, um, it happened to be the people making the noise was a black ladies fraternity, black female fraternity, and they brought a, uh, a racial harassment suit which the university took up against uh, the young man. I forgot whether the ACLU yes, entered we into absolutely, it, and, and how does that type of yeah. speech uh, compare with these sexually uh, offensive it, it, speeches? It's, it's a very astute question because it involves exactly the same First Amendment principles, what we lawyers call viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality, that government may never suppress speech because the audience disagrees with or is offended by the content. And uh, the term that's often used to describe all of this kind of speech, in addition to harassment, is hate speech. Uh, speech that conveys hateful ideas, ideas that are hated, it's got kind of a nice double meaning there, that is no justification for censoring it. And I think, believe it, that was one of the incidents that gave rise to the birth of fire. Uh, the ACLU, I'm proud to say, uh, so there was a, a spate in the late 1980s, early 1990s, a spate of campus hate speech codes that included any kind of offensive expression. Uh, and the ACLU brought and won the first couple of lawsuits. Uh, one, the first one was at the University of Michigan, the second one at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, you know, and then we became, and, and, we, and we won. It was a no-brainer under the First Amendment. Right. By the way, the most notorious or celebrated, depending on your perspective, uh, ACLU case ever was defending the free speech rights for Nazis in Skokie, a community that had a large population not only of Jews, but Holocaust survivors. And that was an extremely unpopular case in the public and in the media and even in the ACLU. We lost about 15% of our members, um, and, but it was a slam dunk victory in the court system because the basic, again, as I said in my opening remarks, the Supreme Court has called this the cornerstone, the bedrock of our free speech system. Yes, we can go and counter-demonstrate. Uh, we should go and counter-demonstrate. We should shame them. We should, um, or we should ignore them. That's another thing to do, not give, you know, magnify their voice by drawing attention to them, uh, but we should not suppress them. And I, by the way, I wrote a whole book about that as well, uh, which takes the same perspective that my book, Defending Pornography, does, which is, I am not, uh, I am absolutely convinced that we do not and should not 
choose between, feel that we have to choose between free speech and equality. I believe they are absolutely mutually reinforcing values in this context and others. And it does far more harm than good to the well-intentioned and urgent goal of countering racial discrimination uh, on campus at least as much as elsewhere. But I am absolutely convinced, based on experience, that censoring hate speech will do more harm than good. Uh, I can, and I've written a whole book that explains that conclusion, but I won't belabor that point anymore now. I'll waive my question if someone else wants to ask. No? Okay. Hi, Nadine. Hi, Joe. It's good to see you again. What do you think is the better battlefront for this issue of creating a sea change against uh, us decrying sexually explicit speech? Because it seems a lot of that is rooted and quagmired in the view, which you have rightfully uh, and correctly uh, demolished in defending pornography, that women are meek and cannot be sexual beings. Do you think that it is better to go into the marketplace with counter speech, saying, no, 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 women are gorgeous sexual people, or do you think perhaps state courts might be a venue for that? Case in point, in New York, we have a long line of decisions uh, protecting that issue, like people against PJ video. Your question ties into uh, an, an, an Nolan's question uh, because you're both asking about what is the most effective strategy to bring about reforms and end these problems. And as is clear from Nolan's question and my answer, and you know the the problems with trying to bring a lawsuit against OCR, um, not every problem can be solved through litigation and. You know, I also think that changing the culture is absolutely critical, no matter how many, even assuming hypothetically that we could win legal victories, they're not going to be enduring unless we get people to cherish and, and come to the ramparts uh, for freedom of speech. You know, I'm uh, thinking of, uh, there are a, a number of wonderful statements about this, but um, Learned Hand in his great speech about the spirit of liberty, a wonderful uh, former judge in, in, in New York appellate court said, you know, liberty lives in the hearts and minds of men and women. If it doesn't live there, no law, no court, no constitution can save it. If it uh, does live there, you need no court, no law, no constitution to save it. Another great quote, quote is a Harvard quote from um, Zechariah Chafee, who in the early 20th, first half of the 20th century was a free speech scholar uh, uh, at Harvard Law School and an active member of the ACLU National Board of Directors. And he said, in the long run, people will have just as much freedom of speech as they want. Because we'll, then we'll elect government officials that will respect the speech. They'll appoint judges that will respect the freedom. Uh, so we do have to change the culture, and it's one of the things that really worries me as, you know, much as I revere um, the Harvard Law School faculty members, 
Harvey uh, and others I've mentioned who have been fighting for free speech, we're, you know, not the youngest of the generations uh, that are populating this earth. And I really wish to, I wish I would see more student leadership. I think it's one of the great things that FIRE is doing is nurturing uh, a student leadership network. I know the John Adams Society here is defending free speech and Lisa was nice enough to come as my my guest, I mean, you, it's really in your hands. You will have as much freedom of speech as, as, as you demand. Nadine, thank you very much for a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.